Um, hello, everyone. So we are currently uh, live streaming on Facebook, and this also streams live onto our website. And um, as we mentioned, we'll, we'll kind of be there and searchable in perpetuity um, after tonight. Um, so welcome back to our Winter's Mind. This is our second week of studying food with Drisha. Um, we, in the mornings, we're learning the sixth parak of uh, Tractate Brachot, which is all about um, blessings people make over food um, and raises some of those big questions about the, the Jewish person's relationship to food. Um, and in the afternoon, we've been exploring some of those um, questions further through texts. And then last week and in the evenings, we heard from people who are involved in the food creation process. Um, and this week, it's less about where does food come from and more does more about where does food go. Um, so once you have farmed your honey and your plants and your um, and your uh, um, meat and all of those all of those things, what and your dairy, like how does it get to the people it needs to get to or not as it as it uh, said so we're um, our, our discussions really week center around plenty and scarcity last night we also spoke about how in halachic sources when you have scarcity the answer isn't always just um take a handout the answer is often well we should first and foremost protect people's dignity um and that is a, a theme that comes up when we're discussing scarcity as well. Um, tonight, we are very, very fortunate to have some representatives of Mazon with us. Mazon is the Jewish response to hunger. Um, and Mazon is not in the business of running soup kitchens or handing out food to people, but instead actually being involved in the nitty gritty of American food policy. Uh, you can see behind Liz, in a land of plenty, there should be plenty for everybody. And that is very much um, our subject this week, when there is so much plenty, why do so many people experience scarcity? Um, so um, before we get too far, I do want to introduce some of our guests. Um, so Liz, who I, I just mentioned, Liz Braun-Lillianfeld is the Deputy Director of Community Relations at Mazone. And in this role, she seeks opportunities for collaboration and civic engagement with a focus on developing leadership in synagogues and schools. Prior to joining Mazone, Liz worked at Jewish World Watch, an anti-genocide advocacy nonprofit based in Southern California. She has a BA in English from Berkeley. Kyle Fragkin is um, Mazon's Deputy Director of Public Policy. And in this role, Kyle works with lawmakers and their staff to move Mazon's policy agenda forward on Capitol Hill. Kyle brings years of experience in government affairs to this role from his past work as J Street's Assistant Director of Government Affairs, as well as experience in political campaigns and local government. He also serves as an alumni mentor to undergraduate students participating in the University of California's Washington program. He holds a BA in political science from UC David and a JD from Southwestern Law School. A native Angelino, Kyle now lives in Washington, DC. Paul Sherman is the outreach manager at Mazone. He brings more than four years of experience in community organizing, both with Jewish and anti-hunger organizations. And after founding the University of Denver's chapter of Food Recovery Network, he completed a fellowship at their national office in College Park, Maryland. He has a BA in Religious Studies and International Studies from the University of Denver. And at Mazon, he implements Mazon's priorities on the East Coast by identifying and developing relationships with Jewish community-based organizations, including synagogues and anti-hunger organizations. So welcome so much to Drisha. We're so pleased to have you with us tonight. Um, and take it away. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We are uh, so honored that uh, you invited us to join you in this uh, uh, learning series. Uh, and I'm, I'm delighted to be here with my colleagues and to engage with all of you. Uh, I have to say I'm jealous of all the uh, textual deep reading you guys have been engaging in. And so I really hope 
that we'll have the opportunity as we get to the discussions for you to bring up some of that uh, to kind of color our, our conversation. Uh, so as uh, Robinit Sarna shared, I'm Liz braun Lillenfeld, uh, and I am in our outreach department at Mazon. Uh, and so I'm just going to start us off here. Uh, I'm going to uh, pass it to uh, my colleague Paul in just a moment to share a little bit uh, a very little bit because we want to keep this tight about Mazon. I'll share a little bit about the program that we're going to be sharing with you. It will be a 14-minute video. Uh, then we will have some period of discussion and then we will be joined again by our uh, colleague Kyle who's going to go do a deep policy dive uh, and kind of reflect on uh, what's going on in our country now and uh, how, how you can be engaged. Uh, so first, Paul, uh, can, can you share a little bit about Mazon? Absolutely. Yes. Thank you, Liz. So good evening, everyone. My name is Paul Sherman. It's really, I'm really excited to be with you. Um, like Liz said, I'm going to try to keep this very brief because we have a, you know, a video to watch and an exciting program to dive into. Um, but just so you have a brief overview of what Mazone does, um, as, uh, as has been mentioned, Mazone, a Jewish response to hunger, uh, works to end hunger for people of all faiths and backgrounds in the United States and Israel. Um, our work can really be split into three main pillars, those being education and advocacy, um, strategic initiatives and grantee partners. So education and advocacy is really, you know, we really believe that advocacy starts with education and making sure that people understand what the issue of hunger and food insecurity uh, look like in the United States today. Um, so, you know, for my zone, advocacy means uh, exactly what Kyle will talk about in a little bit uh, about advocating on Capitol Hill and around the country. But be, you know, before we can become advocates ourselves, we believe in doing educational programs just like this. Um, and secondly, strategic initiatives. Um, we're a relatively small organization compared to other anti-hunger organizations. And so we really look for ways that we can have the sort of loudest voice. Uh, and we, this often leads us to um, speak about populations that are often underrepresented and, un and overlooked. Um, and so that includes veterans and military families, rural and remote populations, including Native Americans and senior citizens, and particularly LGBTQ senior citizens. Um, and finally, uh, we work with grantee partners across the country. Um, these are often food banks um, or other direct service organizations. Uh, and we actually fund advocacy positions within those organizations. Um, and that is often where we get, you know, information about these communities that are facing hunger right now across the country, which um, we then take into our advocacy work so that we can make sure that those communities, uh, their needs are being addressed and we can really figure out uh, the reasons that allowed those people to be hungry in the, hungry in the first place. Um, so that's just a really, you know, quick overview of Mazone, and I'll let Liz talk a little bit about the actual program we're going to be doing, and then we'll jump into the video. Sure. Thanks, Paul. Uh, so This Is Hunger uh, is a digital video experience. It was born a number of years ago now uh, when we had a photojournalist travel the U.S. and interview people experiencing food insecurity. And so those photos, like the one, um, oh, my video switched, like the one featured behind me, uh, are the uh, kind of meat of this program. So you're going to hear from six people who've experienced food insecurity. 
Uh, and that's, and we feel it's incredibly important to uh, hear these first person narratives uh, of what hunger looks like, because when we're talking about hunger in the US, uh, before the pandemic, we were looking at about 40 million people experiencing food insecurity. And that number has grown incredibly during the pandemic as people uh, are uh, responding to the economic downturn and the lack of jobs uh, and, and, and so forth. And so the, uh, I'll leave it to Paul to, uh, to, Paul, to uh, Kyle, I'm sorry, uh, to, to share some of the, the latest numbers because it's data and getting um, up-to-date data has been uh, one of the difficulties of this pandemic. You know, how do we measure these, uh, the growth of these issues? Uh, but, but certainly the, the problem started significant and has only grown. Uh, and so while the stories that you're about to hear are from a number of years ago, uh, they still very much represent um, what it looks like to be hungry in the US. Uh, and so we will we'll watch uh, this video, uh, which um, for Sarah will be, uh, Paul will be sharing uh, his screen. As, uh, for the tech bit of it. Uh, and then we'll, we'll have some time to discuss and reflect uh, on those stories uh, and move on from there. So thank you so much for, uh, for spending your evening and uh, giving your attention to, uh, to these narratives. I was one of these people that thought, you know, I'd, I'd work my 30 years and retire and live happily ever after. People don't realize, you know, what you got until it's gone. My life now as a senior citizen is probably harder than any of our other lives with the working, the raising of children. We're pretty much isolated here. My mom's been working 20 something years in the school system. She had the job, everything was fine. When I was in my 40s and 50s, I had no idea that this would happen. I thought when I turned 65, I would be living a good life. I always thought I could have a job and be able to progress in my job to be able to provide for my family. And I could list the different skill sets that I had in the military, but a lot of those skill sets don't translate into civilian life. My childhood was a very beautiful childhood. My mom was used to always getting us what we wanted. It wasn't the best, best house ever, but it still was ours. 
Uh, you know how they can be hungry in America? Because they've lost their jobs. They've depleted their retirement savings that they've had. They've lost their homes. For all my life, since I was 17 years old, I've served my country, been responsible, reliable, dependable, accountable. I went to work every day, did what I was supposed to do. And now I'm faced here, worried about feeding my family, and we shouldn't have to do that. It makes me feel sometimes like a, like, a, like a garbage can out there just waiting to be picked up and dumped. It really does. All this stress, all this pressure. I'm a nerd. I collect toys. I've always been a kid at heart. I fell in love with working with kids and helping kids. I wanted to become a teacher, but it's a small royal town. It's actually falling apart. People aren't moving in. They're moving out. The community is getting smaller and smaller. And a lot of my problem is, is I'm such a family person that I don't want to move away from my mother and my dad. I feel like I'm not fixing meals that are nourishing. It is not the thing to do, I know. But if you have to have your meds to keep you alive, you're gonna pay for them and do the best you can with what food you can get makes a person feel depressed. The senior meals are a blessing. You know, I like to eat. I'm like anybody else, but we're not generally able to afford healthy foods that some people can. When you go and you're used to having food to eat, and then there's nothing there. It's, it's, we've got canned food in there that's probably older than me that we've had to open up and eat. Going to bed hungry gives you that feeling that you, you gotta get up and eat. You, you, it keeps you from sleeping, really, it does. It's not a good feeling at all. My mother has nights when she can't sleep either. Just of the thought that she doesn't have a job and she thinks she can't provide and she can't live with herself. It's not something anybody would want to go through. In 1957, at the age of nine, we moved the first time from one plantation to another. When I was a child, we had more, more food, more meats than I have now. I changed the way I eat because I don't have the money to buy what I used to buy. Now, not being able to feed myself the way I would like to. I cook 
to fill me up, not so much as healthy. I always tried to eat healthy, and I'm on cholesterol medicines now. We had a two-bedroom house in a country club garden. We couldn't keep up with the payments. My mom, she bought us one instead of paying the mortgage. It was very hard at first, like, uh, I don't want to take care of my sisters, but my mom's getting sick, and I couldn't work. She got stamps, but with three kids, it doesn't last the whole month. Kids eat a lot. We're like, okay, don't eat as much. We have to make the food last. Don't ever think this can't happen to you or your family. I mean, I had a great UAW job making $100,000 a year almost with overtime. It's gone. It's gone. And all the other things that were attached to it are gone. Health care, life insurance. And now I'm stuck here trying to figure out what I'm going to do. I used to help people out with delivering food assistance. I'd never lived above my means. We used to go out to dinner a lot, you know, as a family. My wife cooks meals now that'll probably uh, last a few days longer. I mean, uh, never thought I'd be like that. It's a scary world we live in today. It really is. I never really had to rely on the system to support me that much because I always felt that, that was wrong. I feel that there's people more deserving of that than me. I decided to apply for food stamps because of my family. I have a wife and a son, and I'm not able with my job to support them. I don't want to have to be doing the food stamp program, but it's for those families that aren't able to make it on their income. We were skipping meals so we could feed our baby. I have high blood pressure, and you have to be careful for that. But salads and fresh vegetables, we just don't consume unless they are out of a can. I bought a little carton of tomatoes out here to the store not long ago, which was $2.89 for just a few tomatoes in one of them little plastic things. Cut them very small and used very few at a time, just like almost enough to give you a taste. You don't have an understanding to either there. But you know what? What happened to me can happen to anybody. It seemed like to me, once you get a certain age, you tossed aside. I never would have thought America would be like this. It affects your parents. It affects how you act. It affects how you work at school. It makes you feel like you're not normal. It really does. It's, it's not something somebody should have to live with in their life. And there are kids right now, younger than me, having to go through it. 
whoever can help with these programs, please do so. Because there's a whole bunch out there, a whole lot of people out there that I'm sure are hungry. You ever heard people talk about they're standing in line in the grocery line and somebody pulls out the, the bridge card and they've got a fur coat on? You ever heard things like that? I always thought I was, you know, living a pretty fair life. Six. That comes out to about 90 cents per person per meal. It's less than $18 a day. Ought to feed the family. And even apply for public assistance. It's not your finest moment when you never food. And here you have people that have lived their whole lives working in the in, in United States of America that, that have no food. No, demand accounting. Demand that people be held accountable for their actions. I kind of wish I, you know, I could scrape up some type of food to get um, a decent meal. If I had to add anything to this, it would be to um, get off of government assistance. You'll never ever be able to control what happens to you. You can think about it all day long, you can plan for it. The only part you can control is how you react. So get involved, whether it be standing up for what you believe in, uh, demonstrating, advocating, bringing awareness, food pantries, food assistance, healthcare, whatever the case may be, do something. From going to a very comfortable life to a struggling life, it made me think there's lots of injustice in the world. Change starts by one person. So I want to be that change in the world. So welcome back, everyone. Uh, again, uh, so we're, we're grateful that, uh, that we had the opportunity to share this with you today. Uh, and we wanted to spend the next few minutes uh, reflecting on what we just heard. Uh, and so I'd like, uh, uh, oh, wonderful, gallery view. That's what I was just about to ask, um, unless I just did that. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I was going to uh, uh, suggest that we, we go into gallery review so we can uh, all see each other and, and have a little bit of a discussion. Uh, and uh, because we want to hear from you and, and see uh, what, if you have any questions that, that came up uh, from these stories, uh, how this intersects with Mazone's work. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if we don't have any questions, I can, I can certainly lead us down a few different roads. Uh, but I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, what what are your thoughts? What does this make you feel? What is uh, what comes up for you? It's horrifying. Certainly, thank you, uh, thank you, Enid. It's horrifying is certainly the word. So my question is, I'm guessing there's different levels of food insecurity, but isn't feeding, in other words, how do you stop it? I mean, obviously people are saying they've got jobs and 
housing and everything else. So we didn't have to kind of treat those. You just treat providing food. How do you get out of food insufficiency? And I just think with social services or whatever it might be, but just providing food for people that need food doesn't seem to be, it might end their hunger, but how do they become self-sufficient in a small town? How does he get a job? How can he, what, what issues are being done aside from governmental lack of things? Um, I know countries, there's drought or whatever, but how do you help people stay out of food security, at least for the next generation, as opposed to just feeding them? And you see these horrible food lines. Obviously, that's a crisis, but how do you get beyond that? How do you end those food lines in a generation from now? Thank you, Steve. I, I so appreciate that question. Uh, and I'll certainly, um, I, I, I can start, it up, start us off, but I welcome uh, any answers from, uh, from my colleagues as well. Uh, but uh, as you shared, you know, there is a government response to hunger and that's what uh, Mazon is focused on uh, because the, the charitable response can only go so far. Uh, one of the uh, kind of numbers that I like to share uh, is that if you look at the kind of whole pie of food assistance in this country, uh, then, you know, how people get their food assistance. 95% of that comes from government programs. Only 5% is the entire charitable response. Every food bank, every food pantry, uh, every meal serve, that is serving 5% of the need and 95% is coming from programs like SNAP um, or food stamps. Uh, so SNAP being the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, uh, the School Lunch Program, uh, WIC, uh, which stands for Women, Infants and Children, and a number of commodities programs and so forth. Uh, and so there is just so much more leverage, so much more resource uh, coming from these government programs. And right now with the pandemic, we, we see the, our charitable uh, partners even more pressed for resources. Uh, you know, when somebody hasn't engaged with the, uh, with the system before, if they weren't already signed up for SNAP and suddenly they've lost their job and uh, they're navigating all these systems for the first time, like they're gonna turn to, to a food bank first. You know, that's what's familiar. That's, uh, uh, that's kind of that first emergency step. Uh, and they were already working at capacity. Uh, and so we have asked so much of them in these, in these last months. Uh, and so it's really, it's really reflective of just how much we have to build up the government programs because any reduction uh, in those government services is just asking our, our charitable partners to uh, increase their output by, uh, you, you know, it's like doubling or tripling their their whole budget. You know, it's it's you know unless uh, somebody can point us to those angel investors, uh, you know, that's it's it's just uh, untenable. Uh, and 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 again, as, as you were referencing, Steve, like this hunger sits at the intersection of so many different issues. Uh, you know, being being hungry isn't just a a uh, a representative like it, it's uh, 
Sorry, I'm losing my words. It, it's, uh, it doesn't exist on its own. You know, it's a, uh, a representation of other, other hardships. Uh, and so if like we need to address uh, medical needs, we need to address housing needs, uh, and we need to address childcare needs. Uh, and so, and so it's all, all of these pressures um, on people and on their finances uh, ends up uh, pushing people into food insecurity. Uh, and so, but I, I wanna give my, my colleagues a, a chance to share and certainly if there's other comments in the room. There was a question that came through in the chat. Um, Susan asked, what distinguishes Mazon as a specifically Jewish response to hunger? Oh, wonderful, thank you. Uh, Paul, you wanna take this one? Sure, that is a really great question. Um, so, you know, this is a question we get a lot. A lot of times people think um, what, before getting past the first misconception, you know, wondering whether Mazon feeds people directly. A lot of times people wonder, does Mazon only feed Jewish people or, you know, only serve kosher meals or that kind of thing. Um, so off the bat, we, we do not feed people directly in the first place, um, but we also, um, we're inspired by Jewish values and ideals. Um, and, you know, in one sense, what this means is even using this program as an example, um, engaging with the Jewish community and really encouraging uh, the Jewish community that they're, uh, that our values do um, compel us to respond to hunger. And that's not to say that there is not hunger within the Jewish community. Uh, you know, there isn't, um, we don't wanna create this sort of, you know, us versus them narrative because there absolutely is food insecurity and hunger within the Jewish community. But that being said, um, you know, those in the Jewish community who are fortunate enough not to um, deal with this issue um, do have a moral obligation to respond to it. Um, and so, uh, you know, when we're advocating on Capitol Hill or across the country, um, a lot of times anti-hunger organizations, uh, if they are from a faith-based perspective, a lot of times it's, it is, you know, from uh, um, a Christian perspective. And so we do feel that we bring sort of a unique faith-based perspective to the table in that sense as well. Um, so yeah, if, Liz or Kyle, if you have anything to add to that. I'm, I'm actually, I'm trying to look for a textual reference and I feel like I'm not gonna find it fast enough. Uh, but it's, it's just, it's, it's interesting because you, uh, you had shared that, you know, if, if somebody isn't experiencing food insecurity themselves within the Jewish community, that they, they have a responsibility to, uh, uh, to participate in this work of ending food insecurity. And it just so happened that we uh, we had a, a, a so two of our rabbi colleagues uh, examining a text that was sharing uh, that everybody is required to give tzedakah, like everybody is required to participate in acts of justice, uh, whether or not it um, affects them, because that is inherent in in our dignity uh, to to participate and to be part of that that power structure and uh, and to um, to help others. Uh, and so, but but of course, I will um, I will I will look for 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 the reference. Uh, but I do I, I'm looking at the time, and and I want to make sure that we get to Kyle's portion, so we can have this kind of deeper policy discussion. But uh, certainly, I want to flag that anybody can uh, drop questions in the chat, uh, and and we can continue to answer those there, and we'll have a Q and A at the end as well. Uh, but 
you know, I just wanted, we wanted to start with the, um, with the This Is Hunger video uh, to kind of ground us in this conversation of uh, what does hunger look like? What are the myths around hunger uh, in the US? Uh, and, and now we're going to uh, transition into what are the policy responses? Uh, and so unless we have any final comments, uh, see, not seeing anything come up. So, uh, so we can shift to Kaya. Thanks, Liz. Uh, hello, everybody. Good evening uh, for those of you on the East Coast. Um, you know, uh, as Liz talked about, you know, we, uh, and Paul, I should say, and we learned in this video, we learned a little bit about what the state of hunger is generally in the United States, which is dire. It is a, a pandemic of its own kind. Um, but I kind of, you know, before we get into what can we do, I do want to highlight a little bit of what it is that we um, are facing right now in the face of this pandemic and how the food insecurity epidemic has just become um, so exacerbated by this. Um, in the video we watched, and this is hunger, uh, you know, at that time it was estimated about 40 million Americans, uh, people living in this country, and get, have some form of food insecurity at a given point in time. Just to put that in the context, um, which is something that I didn't even really put together until I started working on my own, that is about 8 million more than the entire population of Canada that lives within the United within the borders of the United States. Um, and I don't, don't know potentially at some point where they're gonna get their next meal. Uh, do not know how they're gonna provide food um, on their table for their family or for their children. That is a scary number in of itself. Um, it explains what you know, number that was mentioned of that only 5% of those who need or you know, the charitable sector can only make up for 5% of the need of those who are hungry. Um, in the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, estimates obviously have, uh, you know, are, you know, they're, they're hard to pin down because Alyssa said, many people are not uh, familiar with how to example uh, apply for programs like SNAP, but are just um, utilizing food pantries as needed. But it's been estimated that it's north of 80 million people at some point during the point, the course of this pandemic, did not know where their next meal was gonna go come from at some point, um, which is really what the definition of food insecurity as the government, as USDA, um, that administers all these programs, including SNAP, um, considers hunger is more you know associated as the psychological aspect of being food insecure. Um, and being food insecure is really just defined as not knowing where your next meal can be um, coming from. So that's where we are at at this point. Um, to further show about um, how much the food, the charitable sector is unable to make up um, the, especially the rise of food insecurity is uh, demonstrated by the fact that it is estimated that the charitable sector provides about $4 billion, or sorry, 4 billion meals per year um, through food banks across the country. It is estimated that they are going to face an 8 billion meal shortfall because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that requires only one other person, one other entity in the United States that we have, which is the government to step in and to utilize the powers that it has in, um, in providing a safety net um, and through these various programs we've had, including SNAP. Um, but as we are, we've even heard in this, uh, in our This is Hunger presentation, SNAP alone is often not enough uh, for many people. So 
just you know some numbers because I you know want to make sure everybody's on the same level of information and SNAP is estimated it's um, in terms of how much money a person gets at SNAP in terms of maximum benefit. The calculation is based off what's called the thrifty meal plan, which is something that the uh, USDA, the US Department of Agriculture, came up with estimating how much a specific you know kind of basket of goods costs. And the average out is essentially being that it is about a dollar forty per meal. Now, think about that. Think about the last thing went to your grocery store, you went to Trader Joe's, you know, everybody went to Whole Foods. That doesn't get you very far. Um, and that's to, uh, and that's evident of the people who live on SNAP. So for those, I just wanted to pull up so I have the most um, update numbers. But if you are, for example, let's say a family of three, you're a mother and you have two kids and, um, you know, the average monthly benefit for you is about $400 that's what you're getting from SNAP. Um, most data shows that actually most people who live in families that live on SNAP make it to about the 21st day in the month or through the third week before uh, you know, on that benefit and have to figure out what to do for the rest of the week. And that often leads to many trips, for example, through fast food, uh, things that are um, cheap, things that are often not, not great for you, which leads to poor health outcomes, which leads to increased healthcare costs, not just for the individual experiencing food insecurity, but for the nation as a whole, because that's how uh, you know our insurance system works, is that we kind of um, you know absorb the costs across all these things. But it it is putting uh, a, an effect, a negative effect, on so many different aspects um, of our society. It's more than even just as we think of it, the um, you know not having food um, enough to feed yourself, um, and it's also um, you know, there is, um, you know, in a lot of ways that SNAP, um, you know, we talked about in this hunger video about the stigma that's caused by accepting government assistance. Um, there's also a lot of misconceptions of the people that, um, you know, utilize government programs, but it's also clear that the people who are experiencing uh, at rates of food insecurity, it definitely also falls along, um, you know, or relates to issues of racial injustice and systemic racism in this country. Um, you know, just going back again, I wanna make sure I have the right data, but you know, just for, as we're looking at the pandemic, which we know has affected women more than it's affected uh, the population as a whole, it's affected black Americans more than the population as a whole, whether it's in, um, you know, lost employment, um, whether it's health outcomes, you know, um, people of color are being more negatively impacted by COVID. Um, during the spate of the pandemic, it was estimated up to about 22% of uh, Black households were experiencing some form of food in uh, insecurity um, during, uh, this is about the week leading up to Thanksgiving. So this is coming out of summer into fall where there was an uptick in employment, but it was before, you know, right now what we're seeing kind of the um, job losses going up as holiday employment is, um, is, is closing. So there's also this aspect of, uh, of systemic racism that impacts those who are, are hungry as well. And which leads to, again, I, it's a lot of doom and gloom, but um, I do wanna come back to, you know, this all relates to why Amazon exists, which is that the hunger cannot be uh, solved by food banks alone. There, is a, there must be a policy solution um, and it can be solved. There have been times, um, that the United States um, has been so close to solving and making sure that nobody uh, United States goes hungry. 
Um, you know, think of programs like the Great Society, for example, um, with President Johnson. Um, and so it really is. It's just a. It's just a. Pol hunger is a policy problem that can be solved. We just have to have enough people to take the time to make sure to make it clear to their elected officials that this is something that you care about, and thus, thus as a result, this thing that they should care about. Um, it is just a lack of will on behalf of our elected officials, both um, in Congress and the executive branch, um, and in our states and localities, because all those parties have an important role to play in addressing hunger. So, you know, some things that Mazonas uh, does um, and what I do on a daily basis is talk with members of Congress and their staff, uh, these days mostly their staff, um, but to tell them and to inform them what it is that's happening um, in their communities. Um, you know, one example I think that, and many, um, many congressional staff are surprised at some aspects. Obviously they know that there are too many hungry people in this country. But you know, one uh, population that Mazone works with in particular is active duty military families. When we think of the United States, we know that we have um, a poor history of taking care of our veterans in this country. But to think that there are active duty families living um, in, uh, uh, with food insecurity um, is, is also you know, more shameful than, um, and, and many people don't even realize that and many congressional staff don't realize that until we bring it to their attention. Um, and this is something that um, you know, adds to the other population groups um, that we work with and we highlight and bring attention to. So you know, think of things that right now we're asking for um, in particular. Uh, one thing that Mazone with other anti-hunger groups really uh, urged Congress to move forward with, which is a, a, a at the minimum, a 15% boost to SNAP benefits. Uh, both at the, you know, at the raising the minimum level of benefits, if you will, and also raising the maximum number of uh, maximum level of benefits to Americans to help them get through this uh, time. Uh, because we know for a fact that during an economic downturn, millions of Americans rely on programs like SNAP and before that food stamps to get them through, you know, these lulls in employment, for example, um, because SNAP is an important lifeline. Um, and, you know, we are thankful that Congress did um, pass this boost um, in this last COVID relief package, but they have only passed it through June of 2021. And we are urging the new Congress and the new administration to make sure that this SNAP boost is, um, is included for the duration of essentially the economic downturn um, and when the federal emergency declaration is turned off, if you will. Uh, because I think most people can agree, you know, it is very unlikely at this point that the necessity or the, uh, the amount of people necessary to have been vaccinated to return to some sort of normalcy, um, then we all know that the normalcy that existed before the epidemic will never um, and probably shouldn't be built back to where it was. Uh, we should be creating a new normal, uh, but creating to um, a specific kind of, um, you know, return to where we can go back to an office. We can, I can see my, my coworkers in our office in DC um, we can go to the market, we could do all these normal things without the fear of, of succumbing to this virus. Um, that will extend long beyond June. Um, and so that was something that we are still going to be advocating for. Um, and other things that are really important, and um, you know, I want to leave enough time for folks to ask questions about our work um, and to engage in the question and answer um, session for the last few minutes, if you will. But I did want to also just say another thing that we are working on um, in particular is making sure that, for example, a new program that came about during the pandemic um, 
which allows for students who are currently being homeschooled via online learning and distance learning. Um, you know, there were millions of children that um, relied on free or reduced uh, priced lunches or breakfasts um, and meals at school, making sure that they have that benefit now to them outside of school. Um, and so Congress has passed that to, um, to extend through the school year, but it does seem clear that nobody knows really when we're gonna go back to school. So making sure that that has enough funding and again, is making sure that that is tied to for as long as students are uh, engaged in distance learning. So um, I know that that was um, <laughs> a lot of numbers and a lot of statistics that I threw at you, but you know, before we go on to the, the last question and answer, I do wanna come back to um, to really the point that we hope that you'll leave this session with, which is, uh, you know, continuing your engagement with us, uh, being an advocate to your local member of Congress, to your local elected officials, um, and telling them it's an issue that matters to you. Um, I've worked in for uh, a number of Jewish organizations, a number of political settings and local government. Um, can, you know, there really is a, a very special relationship between the elected official and their constituent and that you are their boss and don't think that it's it that um, it's otherwise that they are you know removed from you you control who they are for the most part <laughs> um depending on where it is you live unlike you know myself and, and paul that live in washington dc we don't have representation but for those of you who aren't living in washington dc uh i do encourage you to be uh, a pain in the sides of your members of congress to care about this issue um we know that that power um matters that being um, a responsive voice to member Congress um, is really key to making them and bringing them because you know they may be aware of what's going on nationally, but when you hear from uh, a constituent, whether it's you experience food insecurity or seeing food insecurity in your neighborhood and you care about it, or they know that their constituents care about it, they want to make sure that they are doing right by their constituents for the most part, and um, and I think that that is a really important thing to keep in mind. So. You know, make that call to your uh, local district office. Um, you know, engage if they're doing a virtual teletown hall. Take the time to sit in on it. Those are all really important things you can do to help further uh, the cause of addressing and creating a policy solution to hunger in this country. Um, and so, with that, I think I will turn it back over to Liz and Paul. Hello, everybody. So we. Uh, I I think Paul and I have been busily uh, typing some answers in the chat. Uh, and so I just wanted to flag for everybody that we had a question from Justin uh, about uh, the, uh, like how to respond to people who uh, question uh, basically uh, who, who benefits from SNAP, programs like SNAP and uh, do programs like SNAP and other social service programs just encourage people not to work and uh, to just benefit off the system. Uh, and so we would argue essentially that, that one, uh, most people who can work uh, do work uh, who, who benefit from SNAP. Uh, there are also are work requirements attached to, attached to the program, uh, though they can be waived uh, depending on levels of unemployment. Uh, but it's also, I, I would challenge anybody who gets into a conversation of that sort uh, to, to question the very basis of that question. You know, it's, it's what are our values as a country uh, that we would get put any barriers uh, in front of people accessing food. Uh, 
so and, and I guess I'll to just uh, raise up a few others. We had a question about uh, Leckett, uh, which is a uh, one of the uh, significant direct service programs in Israel. Uh, Mazon was actually uh, honored to help found Leckett. Uh, Though uh, and the landscape of, of anti-hunger work in Israel and the U.S. is very different, uh, you know we do have a government response uh, to uh, to hunger here in the U.S. Though it needs to uh, be sustained in many ways, uh, but it just it looks very different in Israel. We do have a staff member um, in Israel who is uh, working on um, kind of increasing that advocacy response. Uh, but we don't, um, Mazon doesn't participate in uh, those kinds of anti-hunger work, like uh, uh, redistributing food or, or gleaning and that kind of thing, uh, because our, our work is, is based in advocacy and, and increasing the uh, capacity of the government to, um, to respond to hunger. Oh, and so somebody was asking about where you can find food insecurity statistics for locally. Uh, for you, for, for Enid, for in Boca Raton. Uh, and so we can send ar uh, around some resources uh, after the fact uh, to uh, where you can look up uh, what's going on in your community because that is so important uh, to get plugged into to what's happening locally, to know what those organizations are that are serving people uh, so that one, you can help them, two, you can uh, turn to them uh, and turn uh, folks who, uh, who you hear are in need of their services. Uh, Mazone actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, we uh, uh, created a list of resources based uh, state by state, uh, kind of in response to, to COVID and uh, kind of what, uh, you know, certainly there, there, there are standing resources like, uh, uh, but there were, there were some uh, uh, new opportunities, new, um, new responses uh, with the pandemic. Uh, but I'd love to, uh, so I'm, I'm getting distracted going back and forth between the, between the chat. I'd love to hear uh, from some more folks uh, if, we, if there's anything that we've, that we've shared, that Kyle shared, uh, that you'd like to discuss that uh, resonates with you, that resonates textually with you from what you've been engaging with during this series. Uh, so is there, uh, what, what's what's coming up for people? Um, I had another question and just hearing what your organization is doing, I think that's amazing. But I'm still struck with thinking that hunger and food insecurity is a symptom of much, much larger issues. Um, so many people are living paycheck to paycheck, easy job, anybody can fall into food insecurity. So again, I'm just wondering, um, and some people, I guess, will always be food insecure because of age or health issues. But I'm wondering the larger thing about like job security, better wages, things like that. I keep thinking of that expression, which doesn't really apply entirely. Give a man a fish versus teaching him all the fish. And maybe there should be better job skills, people that can work or get out of poverty. People that can't, obviously, you need more benefits and get more food. But I'm wondering how do you stop the cycle if you can ever stop it? So more governmental action, I think, on much larger issues as well. Better jobs. I don't I don't know, but it's just it's like there's always gonna be food insecurity. Right? But how do you 
prevent people from becoming food insecure, given the way our society is structured. I'm just wondering what other, what else can we do to somehow make a difference? You're asking the big uh, question, Steve. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that like stopping a leak, but which is great. Yeah, I mean, do that, but how do you get? Yeah, you know? of course, Steve. I, I think I know where you're going, and you know, like I, I had mentioned, it is there are many systemic failures regarding economic security in the United States, and part of that is food insecurity. Um, you know, it is tied to a lot of employment, and that is definitely an issue. Um, but you know, it's interesting because, um, and there are some things that SNAP can do to help with that because SNAP, the fact that SNAP, for example, only lasts through, you know, 21 days out of the month means, you know, it struggles for, for families as they're trying to figure out that last meal. And so that's, again, you know, potentially actually more expensive that last week of the month as they're spending more money on, on what they think is lower cost food. So it is this cycle effect. Um, I totally get that. So there are things that we can do for SNAP. We could, um, you know, something that Mazone has long advocated for is changing to what is called from the thrifty meal plan to the low cost meal plan, um, which would allow for a greater number of benefits would actually allow for people to put food on the table, um, which actually goes to, I think, um, uh, a question in the chat, which is how do we get healthy food more um, accessible? It's by making, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to do the issue of like controlling the price on the food, but what we can do is provide more, uh, funds to uh, to people to be able to afford healthy food. Um, obviously, they're separate from the issue of things like food deserts, or you know, for example, in a lot of um, uh, you know food pantries get donations, and a lot of times they aren't healthy foods. You know, they're things like sugary beverages, um, or they're you know candies or something like that, high sugar foods. So you know, that's one part of the work. Uh, but the other, I think, the biggest thing we could do is provide people more buying power to be able to, again, go to things that are, um, you know, right now they're by, when you have to make your dollar stretch further, you're going to things, you know, um, you know, I had a professor in college talked about, you know, look around, um, you know, the supermarket, you wanna try to shop for the freshest things, which are kind of like on the, you know, kind of in the periphery where it's the produce and it's the butcher and it's, um, you know, it's kind of on that versus the aisles, which are all the processed foods. And so by providing people more of a, you know, right now people have to make those foods stretch longer. And so they're, they're shopping canned foods and they're shopping these things that potentially have more preservatives and they're not as, as healthy uh, versus, you know, um, you know, buying fresh vegetables or fresh groceries or, or fresh produce, those go bad sooner. And for someone who's living on a limited means, it's harder for them to, to invest that money in something that's gonna go bad in a week and a half versus, you know, if they get, um, you know, a can of, you know, whatever food that's going to last for, you know, weeks, months, potentially. So that's one part of the issue. Um, you know, as, as Liz mentioned, they're part of SNAP, you know, uh, and part of this, actually part of the stigmatization of SNAP has been this, um, as we, you know, sought to reform our social safety net programs in the 80s, and particularly uh, in the 90s, you know, there were these institutions of work requirements. Um, and, and I think there is also this sense of, um, some most data shows that most people are actually only on SNAP for about three months. Um, it kind of varies in terms of what they're using it for. Uh, but the people who need it as their lifeline, these are people who are unable to work or they um, you know, are family or childcare responsibilities that's just preventing them from seeking full employment, which is a whole separate issue that Mazone um, is seeking to figure out how we can solve and how we make it that 
people who are, you know, the heads of their household, um, but are raising a family, how they deal with childcare responsibilities while also trying to find employment. Um, so I definitely understand, you know, the, what you're saying, Steve, there is systemic problems where, um, you know, our economic recoveries or economic growth is happening at one end of the economic scale. Um, but one thing, there are things that we can do to help um, at least create a better social safety net for folks so that they can then, um, you know, find other employment as opposed to, you know, still be worried about making it to that next meal. And I guess the, the only thing I'll, I'll add is that, you know, these are questions that Mazon is deeply grappling with. You know, we did our own um, the theory of change mapping. Uh, so if any of you are kind of involved in uh, organizational work, this might be a buzzword that you're familiar with. Uh, but so we, you know, we kind of stepped back to look at our work and think about what is the issue we're grappling with and how, you know, what is the uh, world in which it takes place and how are we going to make change? Uh, and so, you know, on this map, we had things like capitalism exists. You know, it's like, what is the water we swim in? Like, what is, uh, uh, what, is uh, what, what assumptions are we making? Uh, and, and, you know, and maybe some of those assumptions aren't going to continue or they are, we'll see. Uh, and, you know, to, to step back and think about it's like, how, how do we address this issue of hunger and how do we address its causes? Uh, and where, and where is it appropriate for an organization like Mazon to plug into that work? Uh, because there are lots of opportunities, you know, we could theoretically uh, start advocating for a universal basic income or for an increase in the minimum wage, uh, you know, or we can explore uh, uh, racial inequities uh, and gender inequities and uh, uh, I see job guarantee in the, um, in the chat. So that there's all, all sorts of avenues of uh, you know how, how these how these issues intersect, uh, and and so for Mazone, you know that's it's partly how we uh, adopt new issue areas. Um, I think we've we've touched on that. Uh, you know, oh, and my gosh, I'm looking at the time, um, but but just that we we focus on particular populations to raise up the barriers that they face, and in raising up those barriers, we think it's. Uh, increases access to, to food and programs for all people. Uh, and so I'm actually not going to expand on that. Uh, I have it looking at the time. Uh, but so to out of respect for everyone, is there any any final questions uh, before before we close out? Maybe not. Uh, so I guess with that, uh, you know, I feel like we we had a bit of a whirlwind session today. Um, I'm so grateful uh, for all of your questions. Uh, thank you for spending uh, your evening with us. And please know that uh, Paul and I are available to you. We'd really love to continue to engage with you and your communities uh, to bring uh, this kind of education uh, to, to your synagogue, to your book groups, whatever it may be, uh, and uh, to, to, to help facilitate your engagement with advocacy. Uh, you know, we, we do that kind of training work as well. Um, and it's, it's really your, um, your voices that, that, that help us do this work. Uh, you know, we, like as, as Paul shared at the beginning, you know, part of being a Jewish response to hunger is empowering the Jewish community 
uh, to, uh, to, to really engage and to use uh, our, our communal connections and our tradition uh, to, to inspire that change. Uh, so, so it's really, so, you know, we're, uh, well, 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 we're here, um, uh, always, always continuing the work, you know, it really, uh, we need you. And so we'd love to, we'd love to work with you. So thank you. Do you have book suggestions? I have a book club. We love having speakers, but it would need to tie in with a book. And we would love to read a book that really brought this kind of an issue home. We do have, we have a, a Mazon bookshelf. Uh, it is on our website. Cool. Great. Um, we had one, one last question in the chat, actually, that I think many people would be interested in knowing the answer to, which is what percentage of the Jewish community is food insecure? I, I don't have the answer to that question, Paul or Kyle. I, I, that one stumped me. <laughs> we might hear the answer tomorrow from some of our speakers then, but uh, Kyle, you were going to say something. No, no, I said that would be an interesting uh, study. I mean, I would say it would be something that would likely come from a private um, study of some kind, because my understanding is USDA um, wouldn't ask for you for your religion <laughs> or religious identification before or affiliation before um, engaging in that benefit. So uh, we'd be curious. Please send it along if, if there's an organization that's that's tried to compile that data. Well, tomorrow night, we're going to be hearing from people involved in the work that Mazon doesn't do, which is getting food on people's tables. <laughs> um, well, Mazon does do that work kind of in, in the bigger picture, but not on the like individual people's tables part of the picture. Um, so we'll be hearing from representatives of the ARC, Met Council, and Masdia. Uh, we'll be talking about ways that Jew the Jewish organizations involved in food distribution actually do that work. Those organizations are ones in Chicago and two in New York, but even if they were all in the same place, they're all super different from each other. Um, and hopefully we'll continue the conversation of getting food to the people who need it the most, um, doing so in a dignified way, doing so in a way that supports um, freedom. Do any of the agencies provide kosher food? Yes, they do. All of them provide kosher food. Um, so come back tomorrow night and ask them your questions, Steve. Um, and we'll learn all about all about efforts towards relieving Jewish hunger in, specific, in particular, as opposed to Jewish response to hunger in the United States, which is of course another um, huge, huge important subject that is near and dear to all of our hearts. That number of an 8 billion meal shortfall um, is really sitting on me pretty heavily. Um, and I, um, I'm just really grateful that you, the three of you are all able to join us tonight. I feel like the silver linings of COVID is that we can have, you know, Liz from the West Coast and Paul and Kyle can be sitting in their bedrooms and work. Um, and we get to learn from all of you um, without any, any travel or particular um, difficulty. But um, anyway, so thank you so much for joining and, and for participating in our, in our um, two weeks of learning here at Trisha and we look forward to working with you again in the future. And um, they've been posting a lot of links in the chat to various amazing parts of the Muslim website. Really take advantage, it's a fantastic resource full of amazing information um, put together by some of the people we've heard from tonight and probably some of their colleagues as well. Um, and, um, and keep learning about, about this exact subject because there's so much to learn and so much to do. Um, and we're really fortunate to have Muslim. So thank you. Have a good night, everyone.